0: Help! I have a reactive dog and I don't understand how to gauge the emotional stability of my reactive dog. In today's episode we're going to be talking about the emotional stability of our dogs when they fail to be thoughtful and when they are slaves to their savage nature and we're going to be looking at how to analyze a reactive dog's capacity to, in inverted commas, deal with it. I'm Stu, I'm from Barefoot Paws. This is the Barefoot Paws Podcast, and we are going to be looking at how to get your reactive savage monster to provide useful functional performance with effort, enthusiasm, and execution. Grab your coffee, grab your notebook, take some notes, and let me know how it is in our group. As always, we're going to start with getting ourselves in line with some terminology. So the first thing that we've got to keep in mind is a reactive dog finds themselves always and ever in a defensive defensive mood. What is a defensive mood? The four outcomes of a defensive mood are fight, flight, or freeze or appease. The defensive mood is an emotional framework which essentially um, is a great way of teaching you that when your dog is feeling sad, alone, frustrated, and worried, they're going to have four particular tools that they will default to unless we teach them otherwise. So they will either punch their way out of a corner, that's the fight, they will then try to make some space for themselves through that fight in order to enable flight, and that means that they're going to try and run away and save themselves for another day. If they can then if they can't beat their opponent or they can't run away from their opponent, they are going to then try to appease that opponent. In other words, it'll look kind of wriggly and social, but they're trying to get their their trigger to basically not kill them. And the worst, most deep-seated emotion is freeze. That emotional reaction is then where they know that there is, there's no chance of them being able to deal with this particular trigger in any way at all, they're going to literally stop. Wait for the beating to end and then they'll try and survive another day. So that's kind of a defensive mood. That's what our reactive dogs find themselves in. So, what's this? What do I mean by reactive? When a dog is reactive, they're a slave to their environment. So that means that they're not really acting upon it, right? They are acting because of it. Their environment triggers them into an involuntary reaction. Uh, which generally leads to a learnt behavior so I talked before about that defensive mood the reactions being fight flight freezer peas are reactive dogs determined that one maybe two of those particular uh, outcomes fight flight freezer peas are going to work in this situation or they have they have the perception that they will work so In a reactive state, they are triggered to a certain degree, and then one of those four behaviours, those reactions, will naturally come to the top, and then our dogs will react upon that. And then once that particular behaviour works more and more often, they will start to simply default to that particular behaviour, be that fight, flight, freeze or appease. The opposite of a reactive dog is an operant dog. That's where they are the master of their environment. This is voluntary behaviour not necessarily fight flight freezer peas that's possible. they will tend to um, default into other behaviors. So they are thoughtful and instrumental upon their environment in order to deal with it. Uh, the last uh, definition I really wanted to have another kind of gloss over is uh, threshold. So the threshold basically is um, it's the critical limit to a capacity. So it's the ceiling for our operant capacity, it's also the floor to our reactive capacity. That's what—that's how we're going to be looking at threshold today. So whilst our dogs are in an operant state, well, I'm walking around, they're having a sniff here, they're doing this, they're checking out and doing other things, they're checking in and doing things with us, we're having a game and everything's fine, our dogs are well within their threshold. Then a dog barks. Our dog's excitement peaks because, for example, we have a dog reactive dog. So now we're starting to head towards the ceiling of operant capacity. Now our dog is starting to get into a defensive mood. They're starting to orient towards the problem so that they can either fight, flight, freeze or appease, respective to that trigger. So then that threshold that we're talking to is the threshold into the reactive state. So our operant state tends to be when our dog is calm. And then there's a limit to that calm, there's a limit to that operant capacity. That is the threshold between leaving the operant state and entering the reactive state. So it's the the ceiling of the operant capacity, it's the floor of the dog's reactive capacity. Slow things down. Like I said before, just in in those uh, definitions, uh, a reactive dog finds themselves when triggered very quickly shifting into a defensive mood. They're not thinking, hey, I'm out here with mum and dad or whoever, and I'm just having a great time. They're thinking to themselves, this is fight club, and every time I go out, I'm going to have some sort of a life or death situation. That's a pretty poor mindset to be in. So we need to be able to change that. We need to provide our dog with something so fantastic, so almost miraculous, that even in the face of death, they have some glimmer of hope. And that comes through our markers. Our markers are able to uh, be power tools in even the worst situations. We can somehow sink uh, a little, little seed into that defensive mindset and that seed takes root, it germinates, it grows, and from there we have a nice strong garden of benefit that was previously a choked out weed bed. So when we're talking markers, in in this case what I really want to concentrate on today is just the yes marker. So you can use the word yes or any other word you choose, you can use a clicker, you can use a bell, you can use a whistle, it doesn't really matter. Now what we really want, and this sounds counterintuitive, but what we want from our market is a reactive state, or what we would call a reflexive response. So there's no thought, I click the clicker, I whistle, I say yes, my dog immediately stops what they're doing, orients towards me, they change their mood, they come lollygagging over to me, their tongue's hanging out of their mouth, they're starting to salivate, getting ready for the food, or they're getting pumped up ready for the game, whatever it is that I've attached to that marker. But without a very strong response to that marker, I literally have no hope of being able to adequately get my dog past reactivity. If I do have a strong response to that marker, it allows me to get closer to my trigger, it allows my my dog to be quickly exposed and very quickly decrease distance to their exposure, so that I can ramp up the intensity and still end with a positive bookend to what is otherwise a negative experience, so that my dog starts to view the world in a different way. So, A lot of times when I'm called, it's, hey, I've got a reactive dog, I will go out for a walk and I've tried martingales, I've tried um, halties, I've tried harnesses, I've tried no-pull harnesses, I've tried all these sorts of things, but um, unless I'm at home, it's just not working. And that's because, going back to um, the definitions, look, every time my dog goes out, it's fire club. So when I take my my work that I have trained to, for example, a teaching level, or in the early stages of a training level, and then I'll go and put them into a trialing or testing level, then I'm always asking my dog to sink or swim, but then I'm adding a weighted vest to them and I'm still expecting them to swim. It's it's not going to work. So I need to be able to give a buoyant life vest to a drowning dog. And to start with, That buoyancy comes through the markers. If I don't give my dog something to strive for, they are always going to, in that defensive mindset, react with fight, flight, freeze and appease. And I'm trying to take my dog out of that savage framework, that savage emotional framework, and into a different one. Because in that different mindset, I'm able to get their attention back to me, and through that, that allows us to open the door to a far more civil lifestyle. greatest enemy when we're talking with reactive dogs. We have a safe distance, or, or critical distance, at which our dog is able to act operantly. They're able to interact with their environment, they're able to dictate their response more or less to the environment. So that we're able to deal with our dogs in an operant capacity. Remember back to our definitions, our operant capacity is where they are the master of the environment. They can be thoughtful and instrumental upon their environment. They see a red button, they don't have to smash it. They can think about what it is. So I need to be able to determine how operant can my dog be how much self-control are they able to assert upon themselves. So I've got a, a a little list of things that I tend to do. If I've got a dog and, for example, I'm not too sure how they're going to do, maybe it, it can be used in all sorts of different situations. We're looking at it today, today from a reactive dog, but I've used this for when um, Keffy smashed his neck. I've used this for when uh, Codes had a hotspot and she was hugely uncomfortable. I wasn't able to train her, but I needed to enrich her life in some way. I needed to be able to determine uh, do I need to get her to the vets or not? Can she do certain things or not? Could he do certain things or not? What was the limit as to what their capacity is? And in a reactive dog, what we're looking at is I'm at a distance that I feel my dog is able to remain in a, in a safe slash operant state. How true is that? What is, their, what is their glass ceiling? So the first thing we do is we start off with something ridiculously easy for a dog. We then mark that and then we pay that. Now when I'm doing this, I'm using the marker that dictates that the pay comes from me. So for me, that's that tends to be food. So I'll take a reactive dog out that is hungry because then there's more motivation to listen to the marker to start with. And the first thing that we're going to do is say our dog's name. So for example, I'll say Koda, she orients towards me, I will click, and then food will come from us. Uh, for In her case, I'll whistle and then food will come from me. With Kefi, I would say his name, he would orient towards me, I would click, food would come from me. They have to come over and take the food. So when I'm giving that particular task, it's a very simple task. I say the name, you react to it. What is your reaction to that? Is it a subtle ear flick? Is it a head whipping around to have a look at me? Because if I'm just getting a simple, hey, yeah, I've gotcha, but I'm really paying attention to this over here, then that's for me, that would be a fail. I'm not going to mark that. I am going to go, okay, is that a fluke or is this repetitive? So then I will do another name recognition test. So let's just say for example the first one, awesome, they whipped their head around, they came over to me, I marked, I paid from my hand, they came over to me, they smashed my hand stole food out of it. Awesome source. Now I'm going to wait for them to disengage from me they're going to then engage with the environment. We're at liberty, they're not under any constraints other than the lead. At liberty, on lead, there's only two things that they're accountable for. One, keep a slack lead. Two, don't misbehave. So they're within range. We've had our first trial, now we're gonna have the second trial. I say my dog's name, now they perhaps react to me in a minor fashion or they don't react to me at all. That gets marked down as a fail. And this is important because um, now I'm at 50-50. The first time I said it, my dog was 100% all in. The second time I said their name, very easy task, they completely blew me off. So on one stage they were 100%, the next stage they were 0% performance or execution. So there's, there's no effort, there's no enthusiasm, there's no execution there. There's nothing useful. There's nothing functional. There, there's no performance in the second trial, whereas in the first trial, completely different. It, everything was useful. Everything was functional. We had some performance and it was delivered with effort enthusiasm. We had execution. So now I've got to go, well, this is a this is a two out of three trial. So I'm going to wait for a little while making sure that my dog is then completely disengaged from me. I'll even just sneak in behind them to the other side, for example, and then I will say their name again. I will say it in a conversational tone, but I'll say it with some enthusiasm right? and I'll do that for all three of the trials. So I'll go, Coda. And then you may be able to hear that in the background. Here she comes walking into the studio. She will then get marked. She will then get paid. Stoked. Now, if I get two out of three responses, I'm stoked. I'm pushing ahead. If I get two out of three responses that I would yield as fails, then something is awry. Either my dog is overwhelmed by something in the environment, my dog isn't feeling well, my dog just ain't it today, maybe my dog isn't hungry. I don't know what's going on. But the simplest of tasks, respond to your name, has met with a fail, that's it, the session's done, we're going home. My dog is going to forego that meal. They're going to get something to tide them over, but they're not going to get access to their full meal. Something was wrong and I need to be able to evaluate that. The next time I go out, they must be able to respond to their name two out of three times. If they can't do that, then there's no point pushing it any further because all I'm going to do, if they can't do something as simple as respond to their name, I'm never going to be able to ask for something complex. And neither are they going to be able to deal with the work that is required to overcome their reactivity, work that requires them to be able to get out of a defensive mood and into a better mood. So Once I've got the name recognition, we'll pass that two out of three times. So if I've done trial one, they pass it, they get fed, stoked. Trial number two, I say the name, I mark, I pay, I don't need to do that third trial, I've got two out of three. So what I'll do now is, it's not just name recognition, now I'm going to say the name and I'm going to hold my hand out for my dog. Now it's cold, I get it, don't really care. When I hold my hand out to my dog, if I've got long sleeves on, I'm moving those sleeves up up to my elbow because I want my dog to be able to see very clearly that there's a hand target here. I'm dealing with a reactive dog and I don't know what their capacity is. Whilst I'm doing the work, I I want to make myself as consistent as possible. Sometimes I'm wearing a t-shirt, sometimes I'm wearing a jumper, sometimes I'm wearing a thick jacket, my dog doesn't know. But for the sake of consistency, I'm going to take that as high as I can, I'm going to roll it up to my elbow so my dog sees my hand the same all the time. So we've got name recognition, we move on to a hand touch. I say my dog's name, I hold my hand out in such a way that my dog can clearly see the palm of my hand, my fingers are together, my thumb is pointing up. All the time. My dog come, turns around, they see me with a hand out, they go, oh, what's that? They come over and they push my hand with their nose. That makes me mark that behavior. I then get into the bait bag, grab some food, and I'll get them to eat some food out of my hands. And again, that needs to be successfully completed two out of three times. If my dog can't do something with some mild difficulty to it, like a hand touch, again, there's no point pushing things any further. So we started off with something very easy. We've graduated over to something that's not quite so easy. Now we're going to go over to something that's a bit more difficult. Now I'm going to say my dog's name. Now I'm going to tell them to come to me. And I'm not interested in them just being here next to me. I got that with the hand touch. Now I want them to execute a drill to a specific standard. So I'm going to tell them to come, and for me that means leave what you're doing over there, come over to me, put your paws on my toes, look straight up at me. My dog does that, I'm going to mark it, I'm going to reach into my bait bag, I'm going to give them some food out of their position. So the mark is always a release out of that particular position. So here we have an extra piece of analysis. First. We've gone through easy, we've gone through not so easy, now we've gone through something difficult. But now I also get to see how important is the food that I have available to my dog or is the environment more available. Because as soon as I release my dog from the constraint of that recall to a front position, remember my dog's sitting in front of me, their front paws are on my toes, they're looking straight up at me with expectant eyes, that's that's the recalled front. I then for example say yes click or, or or whistle. If my dog then goes off and checks something out in the environment they're not interested in the food that I have. So here then, lo- he- here is a problem because now I'm not able to assert a certain amount of behavioral manipulation. I can't reinforce what I want. I can't punish what I want. I can't I can't reprogram as well as I might like their emotional response to something because they're not in it for what I've got, they're in it for what the environment has to offer. So whilst they can do the work, they're only doing it so that they can get released to something else. And that then is not beneficial in this particular situation. Because the marker that I'm putting on offer is, take the food out of my hand. If you cannot take the food out of my hand, then we're going home. And you're going to forego this particular meal, or the, the full access to it. So again, recall the front must be executed two out of three times. And because, again, it's a recall, I've got to make sure that in between those trials, my dog is able to completely disengage with me. They're on lead. I'm going to keep that lead slack. I'm going to be attentive to my dog. At some arbitrary point, I'm going to say, hey, Kota, come. She's going to leave what she's doing. She's going to come over to me paws on my toes, looking straight up at me, dude, pay me. As soon as I've done that two out of three times, now I'm going to get my dog to do something that's even more difficult. I'm going to get them from where they are, I'm going to tell them the heel. So that's going to be similar to the recall, except instead of recalling them to the front position, I'm going to recall them to the heel. That means that they are going to have their right shoulder in line with my left leg, they're going to be sitting, they're going to be looking straight up at me saying, hey dude, pay me. Now, that's a little bit more difficult because again, the constraints are pretty much the same as the recall to front, except now the position has changed. So I might be facing a trigger that I'm not even aware of and my dog has to forego looking at that trigger and look at me instead. And again, the click, uh, do they release themselves to the environment or are they releasing themselves into my hand? I want it into my hand, it has to be that. Because from there then what I'll do, once we get two out of three trials that are successful at that that recall to heal, now we're going to do a dynamic heal. From there we go into Stoked, you're invested in the environment, Coda, heal, she'll come over to me, she's going to get into the heal position, I'm going to take a few steps, I'll do some left turns, some right turns, some U-turns, I'll stop. My dog is going to track with me, they're going to maintain that heel position. And then when I stop, they sit. When they can do that, I will mark that particular behavior. My dog will then release into my hand to get the food. And if, if any, any part of that particular behavior chain doesn't work, they don't recall to heel, they don't sit at heel, they don't turn with me they don't stop at heal, they don't release into my hand, that's five particular fail points here, that means that they are not ready for that amount of work. So then I have to ask myself, if my dog can't do something like heal, then how am I going to get them past this reactivity? More importantly, if I have a reactive dog and I'm suddenly surprised, I need to be able to heal my dog through a situation, out of a situation and in some instances into a sticky situation. And if I can't do that, then I have a problem capturing my dog's brain when I need it to be able to shift their mood out of that deficit, that defensive mindset into a benefit, a social mindset. Get into me. This is where you're going to get your food from. So just to go over that again, in order to be able to test my dog's operant capacity to ensure that they are under threshold. uh, I'm not too worried about how close we are to the edge of their capacity at this stage. I just want to make sure that we are not going to flip over into a reactive state, which in this case is going to be a failed state. What I want to make sure is that we are operating underneath the ceiling, or the maximum ceiling, of our operant capacity. So it's name recognition, it's a hand touch, it's a recall to front, it's a recall to heal, it's a dynamic heal. Can my dog do all of those 5 individual skills? That'll take a couple of minutes to do, but I'm working with a reactive dog, I'm going to invest that time. Once my dog is able to do a dynamic heal with me, and do the auto sits at the start and the end, and maintain a reasonable heel, then I know that I'm ready to push into rehabilitating a reactive dog. If I can't do those things, the glass ceiling for that operant capacity is too low, my dog is going to too easily flip into a reactive state and I have to figure out why is that, where do I need to do preparatory work to get ready for this session. This session is too much. What about it is too much? I'm going to go home, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to analyze it, and I'm going to work my way into that particular session. I am not going to smash my dog through their paces because I'm not going to run the risk of validating my dog's defensive mindset and making myself a part of the deficit environment. I am a part of the benefit environment, ultimately I am the go button and I am the stop button. My dog must understand that, if they don't understand that they will always be reactive and I will always be reactive to them. List. It sounds quite painstaking, but once you get used to it, it starts to happen pretty quick. Why is it so important? Well, ultimately the analysis of that critical distance, it allows me to limit the proximity that I am going to impose upon my dog towards a trigger. So let's just say, for example, I have a dog whose critical distance is two lampposts, or two street posts, sorry. So that's going to be around about 50 metres. If my dog sees another dog within, within that distance, they freak out, they go burko. Perhaps they're spinning around trying to run away. Perhaps they're pulling you towards that snarling and, and, and all sorts of, of aggression-looking behaviours. Perhaps they're starting to shake and they're trembling like a leaf in the wind. There's all sorts of things that I might notice about my dog. But I need to be able to figure out when does my dog take stock of a trigger. If it's at two lamp posts, there's two street posts, then that's around about 50 meters. Then I can go, do you know what? At 51 meters, my dog appears okay. At 50 meters, my dog is no longer able to recall the front, for example. Or they're no longer able to hand touch. If my dog can't do that, then I'm too close. I've got to get further away. Then I need to let my dog decompress a little bit. Then I need to go through the critical distance uh, list that we just did, the operant capacity. And from there then, I can start to work my way back towards a trigger. But I can't just go, yeah, I think 50 meters is right. Let's just do 30. That's almost half. So the intensity of the trigger is at least double. And that that sink or swim mentality, go somewhere else if you want that. That's not going to be me. We are in looking at rehabilitation, getting our dog over a certain thing. That means that we're going to be taking our time with it because we need to get to the root cause of the problem, not build in a bigger fear of fear itself. That's the importance of critical distance. It allows me to read my dog, i.e. it allows you to understand why is my dog suddenly lying down when we're going for a walk? Why is my dog suddenly sniffing the ground while we're walk, well, walking? My dog just had a wee two seconds ago and now they're squatting again in the middle of the road. Why? Why are they doing all of these things? Why is my dog suddenly crisscrossing? Why is my dog suddenly panting so heavily? Why are my, e- my dog's ears pinned? Why do my dog suddenly close their mouth? There's all of these different things to read in a dog you know, as to what is it about their current disposition, their current body language that lets me go, something's amiss. My dog is triggered by something. Now, if I can't go through their operant capacity and figure out what is the limit to your operant capacity, where's that glass ceiling sunk to? If I can't figure that out, then I've got to get out of Dodge. Okay? So I'm always looking that because the threshold itself is is not something that is set at level ten, you will do this. It's the same with us as people. Some days we have good days, some days we have bad days. Sometimes we come home and someone has put a fork upside down in the drying rack and we flip out. Our threshold to something so mundane, like the fork upside down in the drying rack, who cares about that? But our stress has built up throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the entire project we're running at work, whatever that is, our stress level is so high that our threshold to being triggered has become so low that we just instantly flip out at something just so ridiculous. And our dogs are no different. So we have to build up some tolerance in our dog. We have to build up some confidence in our dog. We have some preparatory work to do before we actually get to the rehabilitation stage. And during that rehabilitation stage, sometimes I can get close. Sometimes I can't get so close. I've got to take the wins as they come. But at the same time, I'm always looking to get to the edge of that ceiling. That's a glass ceiling that I'm always looking to push up little by little with each session. Sometimes I have easy sessions where we're just out and about and nothing bad happens. Stoked. That's a good thing. Sometimes I go out and my dog flips out as soon as I get out of the house. Now that's a bad thing. But I'm going to take what I can. I'm going to push to the edge of my dog's capacity. Learn from the mistakes, build upon the successes. Whilst I'm around this critical distance, what I want to be doing is I want to be I want to be practicing my dog's skills. So, sociability skills such as heel, recall, sit, stay, down. Uh, so sit, stand, down, uh, liberty. Those are a minimum sort of skills that I would want to teach my dog when I'm out and about. That allows me to get my dog to get up on things, go around things, walk through, under, over, all sorts of stuff. I can do loads of cool things. And whatever other tricks that you've got, whether that be a shake, a spin, whether uh, whatever that might look like, those sorts of skills, I want to start to practice those around that critical distance. Because when my dog's getting pumped, they feel good about themselves. Then we go close to a trigger, or oh, my our dog finds themselves closer to a trigger than they expected. Now we get to see, well, how, much, how beneficial has this session been? We are closer than we were before. My dog sees the trigger and goes, meh, whatever, I'm in it to win it. Maybe, I don't know, I'm going to jump up on top of this auto bin. Maybe we're going to do some healing work around... I don't know, whatever it is, So like a, a, some kangaroo scat that's on the ground. We're going to heal around that, and I don't care about my trigger because I'm in this skill to win it. Stoked. So now our trigger isn't so important, but our trigger is now being essentially poisoned by the good work that we are doing, and they're going to have that aftertaste. So the next time we get to that trigger, we can get a little bit closer. And then perhaps my dog orients towards or away from a trigger. So maybe they just look at a trigger, but they're not necessarily doing anything yet. As soon as my dog shows me that they have interacted with a trigger, that's they either look at it or they intentionally look away from it. I'm going to mark it. Our dog's going to come flying over to me. They're going to eat out of my hands. If I present a mark and my dog does nothing, I'm too close. If the trigger is more powerful than the mark, I've overstepped the operant capacity, and I've overstepped the reactive capacity in the way that I want it. My mark isn't as strong as I expected. So then I've got to go, I need to get out of here. Make some distance, decompress, try again. Get myself to where my dog is able to still react to the marker. They can look to the trigger. They can look away from the trigger. So I was saying before, sometimes our dogs will start to look around furtively, like, oh, look at, at anything except for the trigger. Our dogs will sniff the grass. They will look at us. They will suddenly look at a, a fly flying around. They will start snapping at flies and get aggressive with flies. They, go, they start redirecting on things. Go, oh, okay, our dogs are getting really excited. I want my dog to be a little bit calmer because I want to have some tolerance. I need to back up a bit. But if my dog starts doing things, I need to start scanning the horizon and figure out what is it, why is it? What is that trigger, why is it triggering my dog? In the case of a dog-to-dog reactive case, my dog sees, hears, or smells a dog in inside their critical distance. So they go, look towards, look away, makes me mark, makes me pay. And then I'll go through the Operant Capacity list. Name recognition, hand touch, recall the front, heel static, heel, din- uh, recall the heel, uh, a dynamic heel where we're walking around doing things. Can my dog still pay me the attention that I need? While I'm doing that, again, I'm poisoning the trigger with all of this good stuff. So the trigger is starting to become more and more dilute the closer we get to them. And that's why it's important to take time. As I'm making gains in proximity, I'm devaluing the negative aspect of that trigger. That, that trigger that immediately makes my dog flip into a defensive mood starts to act as a trigger to access beneficial stuff. we want to change a trigger to? We understand what our trigger is. A a trigger is something that immediately crosses our dog's threshold and sends our dog into a defensive frenetic frenzy. So what I really want to have happen is to reprogram that trigger so that my dog sees, hey look, there's a trigger, that's an opportunity for benefit. A trigger should uh, get our dog to get away from cortisol which is what shifts our dog into a defensive mood. So if we remember back from our earlier episodes, cortisol is what drives our dog away from a problem. And they will do that as they are genetically designed. First as a breed, last as a dog. So if I have a battle breed, chances are a reactive battle breed is going to go through the brick wall to get to a problem, beat it into oblivion, survive another day. Okay. Whereas uh, other dogs that are not battle bred or guard or protection dogs, they might just decide to run away. Or or smaller dogs might just find themselves appeasing a little bit more. But ultimately what is happening is current status quo, trigger equals a cortisol-based reaction which is savage in nature. What we want to have happen is our trigger being a dopamine source, so it's an opportunity for benefit. If it's dopamine, if we remember back to our earlier um, episodes, dopamine creates drive to find a problem to the solution, a beneficial solution. So triggers then get access to dopamine, they get access to serotonin, they get access to oxytocin. Dopamine. Is what builds desire, so it builds effort, it builds enthusiasm, and that we can use for execution. Serotonin allows us to get that feel good out of it, our dog feels better about themselves. Oxytocin allows our dogs to feel better with us, so those are big things. Rather than us being a part of the problem, because when does your dog see a dog? When you take them for a walk, so you plus lead at the front door equals get ready for a fight. Now what we're saying is, you plus lead at the front door equals now we get ready to work, get access to dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all of the feel-good stuff, now we have challenges that we present our dog where our dogs are able to thrive so that they can finish on a high. Okay, There's kind of really important things to look at when we've got reactive dogs. What happens when things go sideways? Get out of dodge, get out of there now. Some reactive dogs you are going to need to defensively handle. That looks super gnarly, it's socially very embarrassing, Um, it it can take you a long time to learn those skills. I'm not necessarily going to go over them in great detail um, because that's something where we really need to have some professional advice. to be able to get you past that but defensively handling if you've got the the capacity to be able to hold your dog at arm's length whilst also minimizing their ability to uh, accidentally or intentionally it really doesn't matter but if we can limit the ability for a dog to use their teeth to redirect onto us the environment or their lead if we can negate those three things then we can defensively handle our dogs. Generally what I tend to advise is make sure that you are able to hold your dog at arm's length and get that lead straight up and keep it taut until our dog stops moving. And then slowly relax that pressure. Slowly let your dog down into a sit. Slowly let your dog relax into that sit. And then get out of dodge now. We're not going to go through the operant capacity, we've had a major malfunction. We are not going to run the risk, our dog is still very deep in a defensive mindset. We have forced our dogs essentially into freeze and we got to get out now. It's going to take time for our dogs to decompress, get them home, get them into the crate. At some point later on that day, they will have recovered. But right now is not the time to push it, our dogs had a major brain snap. so. If we overstep that margin, we may be called upon to defensively handle that dog. That's not the goal of a training session. If we have to do that, something's gone wrong. I want to keep the rehabilitative sessions relatively short. We work up duration later, especially in those early stages. Just being near a trigger, or being in the pro- being aware of a trigger for some dogs, is almost too much. And I've got to get in the real quick with a mark and pay. And then I'll cause some hesitation in my dog. Because now my dog's conflicted. Because I'm I am manipulating my dog's mood. My dog sees a trigger. They automatically go into their savage defensive mood. I mark that and they're like, what? Do you want me to look at this dog? Do you want me to feel defensive? Or did you just mark something else and I missed it? Are you going to pay me? And then they start to hesitate, and that hesitation leads to patience. Patience leads to tolerance, and that tolerance allows me to go through the entire operant capacity list. And from there, I can start to do rehabilitative work. So I want to keep it short. I want to, if I can, I'm going to finish on a high. If I can't, I finish on a low. I'm out of dodge. I am not going to artificially finish on a high. If the session's gone sideways, dude, it's gone sideways. But my dog has then learned that I am still in control. I was there after it went sideways. I provided you with safety after it went sideways. So we still end up with some sort of a win. There's still some oxytocin there. Yes, I was there when you got into trouble, but I was also there when you felt safe again. And that then is more important than getting into trouble. What I need to understand is, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. So when I finish on a high, sometimes it's an it's an external high. It's it's my dog and me doing something together. Sometimes it's an in, it's an internal high. My dog has survived what they perceive to be a life or death situation, but I was there at the end, beneficially. Okay, so sometimes I need to get out of dodge now. For some reason, my dog didn't have tolerance. Look, that can happen. Ideally, I'm going to get my dog closer and closer and closer, but I'm not going to overstep my specific boundaries. And that's the boundaries that I've set for that session. I'm not just going to keep pushing and pushing until my dog fails and then come out. I'm going to get closer than I could yesterday, then I'm going to get out. today's uh, very connected world, I can get onto YouTube and I can look at thousands, literally thousands of trainers in hundreds of different languages, all telling me a training program to get my dog over reactivity. And if I'm savvy enough, I can also start to pick out some common factors in how they approach things. They start to do things like we've talked about today. But ultimately, when you start putting your boots into those muddy trenches that's when stuff hits the fan and you find out how much of it you can catch it is really important in the realm of an episode like this to talk about how vital it is to have professional help looking over your shoulder in a session looking over your session during the week looking at videos that you're sending in talking to you about things bouncing videos off of it, uh, bouncing ideas off of each other those sorts of things as to how to take your particular situation and make it better you can't do that when you hook on to a very well-meaning facebook group or other social media and say hey look i've got this wonderful instagram dog hey they, they got some slight reactivity they don't actually like other dogs but i get lots and lots of likes lots and lots of comments i get sponsorships from my dog and i'm able to monetize the instagram account but my dog's actually a pain in the butt All Right. Well, look, why not take all of that stuff that you're getting for your dog and put it to good use? Get some pro-help and avoid risking deepening the fear and making perhaps our dog change their, their reaction from flight towards fight. Or even worse, getting them to freeze. That, that is a life-altering reaction. When a dog stops doing things, and waits for the pressure to stop then suddenly they don't they're not able to be operant anymore they just wait they literally make you make them do everything because that's the safest way to avoid the maximum pressure if uh, old-school training was built around that get your dog to stop doing anything get them to learn to do that one thing so you would smash them into a sit after you said sit And if they were confused, they would simply wait for you to smash them into the sit because they would rather you smash them into a sit than then perhaps do something else that would lead to a catastrophic feedback followed by getting smashed into a sit. And it's no different with a reactive dog. If our reactive dog is in a defensive mood, they see, it, they see another dog, that's their trigger. They go, holy dooly, this is a life or death situation. My life is literally on the line. And they stop doing things because they would rather try to survive a death situation and then heal and then live to, to perhaps survive another day. That's not a lifestyle. That's waiting, to, that's waiting for the heart to stop beating. Uh, those sorts of mind shifts, those sorts of moods, that, that real deep life-or-death fear, it has physical and mental health issues on our dogs. All sorts of stress-related, dietary-related issues. The gut health starts to fail. As the gut health fails, then it, if my gut health starts to suck... Then one of the things that happens is I'm not able to absorb nutrients, so I start to get nutrient deficiency. And from a very basic level, well, hardly a very basic level, from but from a very, um, just scratching the surface a little bit, if I'm not able to take nutrients in of an adequate nature, then chances are I'm not able to take in tryptophan. If I can't take tryptophan, I can't create uh, or I can't fulfill the chain that creates serotonin. So melatonin sits in the gut. If I don't have melatonin, I don't get to sleep. Dogs need to sleep 14, 15, 16 hours a day. If they can't do that, they're acting sleep deprived. Look at any mum who has a crying infant. Imagine that as a lifestyle forever. You're waking up, you feel bad, you know oh, it's going to be a couple of hours at best and then baby's going to scream again. Then it's another couple of hours, baby's going to scream again. Another couple of hours, baby's going to scream again. And that goes on forever. And for your dog, it doesn't stop. The trigger's going to scream again, the trigger's going to scream again. So the stress piles up and piles up and piles up. That means my dog can't sleep, my dog isn't able to uh, recover from stresses, my dog isn't able to access serotonin, my dog isn't able to build serotonin, and then we come along and go, hey, my dog feels a little bit anxious, can we give him an SSRI? and they walk away with a prescription. The issue being our dog is too stressed for the SSRI to work. So something like Lofan, an anti-anxiety drug, it, it it's a band-aid to behavioral intervention. It's a support measure. But if the support measure isn't able to work in the first place, then it's not really doing what it's intended to do. Okay. So I need to be able to look at Yes, there's going to be physical and mental health issues that arise from this chronic reactivity. It also feeds over to owner anxiety. I don't know what to do. I don't have the skills to be able to uh, interact. I'm not able to control. I'm not able to assert any support. I'm not able to do anything. So we have this catch-22 trigger. We aren't able to support our dogs, so we start to get anxious. Our dogs become anxious because we're becoming anxious. And then we put them into an anxiety-inducing situation, which makes us anxious. And we have this, this massive plug hole of anxiety that we get sucked down to as a team, and we come out of it and things go sideways really quickly. It's debilitating. It's socially isolating. So having professional help allows you as a team to progress past your own glass ceilings. Because it's not just the dog that has an operant capacity, it's also us as people. It's important for us to understand that. With professional help, we can take, in some cases, years worth of effort and condense that down into, sometimes, in those lucky few cases, just a couple of sessions. For most people with real, with a, a real sense of, of deep reactivity, it's going to take at least a couple of months to get over that. So it's important for us to understand professional help is available to you. Listening to podcasts like this, watching videos on how to do things, that's all great. But unless we condense that down into some meaningful program where there are synergies between the individual steps where we are strategically working from point zero to point hero that then allows your dog to streamline their learning, that allows you to gain the confidence in handling it gives you the defensive handling, it gives you the proactive handling, it allows you to say no to people who want to trigger your dogs, but they mean well it allows you to, to get other dogs to stay away from you because your dog is triggered and soon enough Your dog may never like other dogs, do you know what? There's lots of people that don't like people, that's not so much the issue. Learning how to control your dog safely and effectively, and being able to have the most inclusive life possible, that's the goal. From there we can start to push the ceiling up, and from there we can see what the limits are. of dogs, How we can analyze a dog's reactive capacity to, in inverted commas, deal with it. We've got to figure out what we're talking about. We've got to under, understand that defensive mindset a bit better. We have to be able to build strong markers. We need to be able to understand where our dog's threshold is at, as far as distance is concerned, as well as their operant capacity. We need to be able to find out what can we do at that critical distance to convince our dogs that it's safe to get closer. We got to understand when to get out. We got to understand how to defensively handle our dogs, and we got to understand why we are doing what we are doing and where that plan is taking us. Once we've got that sort of that sort of a, a battle plan laid out in front of us, that's when we can go out and we can actually start doing things with our dogs that make sense to our dogs. It's one thing to have it make sense to us. It's another to make it have sense to our dogs. And it's another thing to make it worthwhile for our dogs. Reactive dogs aren't easy. If you've got a reactive dog, I would encourage you to get in contact with me at barefootpaws.mail.com You can reach me at barefootpaws.com.au. If you've got a reactive dog, come along and get some support from people who have gone through the process or they just want to hang around people and give you some support. Come over to the Barefoot Paws Discussion Group over on Facebook. And we would love to have you and we would love to support you.